Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. Kin to the Renaissance that occurred uh, in Europe from the 13th to the 17th century, we are in the middle, maybe just the beginning actually, of a biomedical revolution. This podcast is about the promise and the challenges of the new field of genomics. It's drawn from a seminar entitled Putting Your Genome to Work for the NHS, for Industry and for the UK post-Brexit, which was organised by the Progress Educational Trust and sponsored by the Medical Research Council. The Trust's director, Sarah Norcross, was in the chair. Progress Educational Trust, or PET, uh, we answer to both, is a charity that was founded back in 1992 to advance public understanding of science, law and ethics around genetics, or genomics as we tend to call it more now, and fertility and infertility. We do this by promoting the responsible application of science, by engaging with the public, and by informing the debate, identifying the challenging topics, and providing the forum and encouraging meaningful public discussion. And that's why we're here tonight. I did some extensive research on the topic um, in in the form of semi-structured interviews at the weekend with friends over a bottle of Prosecco and asked them what they thought about this. And they hadn't heard of the industrial strategy. They hadn't heard of the sector deal. They hadn't even heard of the 100,000 Genomes Project. I never talk about work with my friends. So we're sort of having this general conversation, really, and then one said, well, would this help advance gene therapy? And I was, I was quite surprised he knew what gene therapy could do or had heard of it, so that was quite good. And he said, because... Because if this could help gene therapy in some way, then I'm all for it and think we should do it. And then the sort of conversation progressed, and he said, but what about insurance companies? And I was quite surprised, because that came spontaneously from them without me trying to say, well, there's anyone you wouldn't like to have this information. So from that, you know, in-depth study, I think I know now what everybody thinks about this when they've got a naive view. So it does seem to be clear when you read about these things that there are, in the public's imagination, some obvious health benefits, potentially, but also there are concerns around things like insurance. So first up this evening, we have Elliot Forster, who's chair of MedCity. MedCity is a project which promotes the life sciences in what's known as the Golden Triangle, which is London, Oxford and Cambridge. So give a warm welcome to Elliot Forster. akin to the renaissance that occurred uh, in Europe from the 13th to the 17th century, we are in the middle, maybe just the beginning actually, of a biomedical revolution. We have the ability to actually decode a whole genome uh, for a few pounds, where it used to cost millions of pounds only a little while ago. Uh, We have the the ability to uh, understand uh, and manipulate those data uh, on an individual and on a mass context. And all of this uh, provides not just individual, uh, but collective opportunity from a health management, precision uh, management of health uh, perspective. So it's in part in that light of us being in the time of a uh, potential renaissance in biomedicine um, that we began to think about um, an industrial strategy, not only to deal with how we bring uh, data uh, and 
medicine and the NHS together, but also how um, the whole broader industrial strategy uh, was put together to figure out how we deal with Brexit. Which is, and of course, it's, it's pretty difficult to go to any meeting of uh, one or more persons without thinking about Brexit these days, and I suspect that will continue for a few years hence. And the government's industrial strategy was then divided down into sectors, and one of those sectors was the health life sciences sector, and a position paper on that industrial strategy was published in August of last year, the author being Professor Sir John Bell, who is the champion for life sciences uh, in the UK. It essentially broke down into seven components, a advanced research component, so-called HARP, which is the Health Advanced Research Program, looking at things like healthy aging and so on. It also sought to reinforce the uh, life sciences sector from an academic perspective. One of the great strengths of the UK uh, is our academic uh, health research foundation. We have the number one uh, number three and number five biomedical research centres uh, on the planet uh, in this country. They happen to be in the southeast of England, but there are many other strengths around the whole of the UK. We also looked to establish uh, growth of infrastructure, so creating uh, manufacturing, uh, advanced manufacturing for gene and cell type therapies, for which and in which the UK has a major role to play and right now is in the forefront of the world's uh, understanding of how those particular technologies, gene therapy, cell therapies, can be used for uh, treatment. And it's a position we find ourselves in uh, having lost the uh, antibody race about a decade and a half ago. Of course, as part of all of this, we are unique in that we have the largest single patient population under a single healthcare provider in the world, uh, which of course is the NHS, which manages us uh, from the moment, in fact, before we're born, um, and in some cases, if you leave your o organs to someone else, till long after we're born. And by the way, the uh, oldest organ uh, on the planet is just over 100 years old now, which was donated by a mother to a daughter. It's a kidney, and so out, out survived the uh, mother, and now continues to live in the daughter. So uh, at least as an organ, that can live quite a long time, and that's kind of interesting. Of course, we also have the opportunity to understand data, not just genome data, but because of this longitudinal database, phenotypic data, so those data which belong to us. Are you tall, small, fat, thin, old, young? Do you smoke a lot? Do you drink a lot? Do you do neither of those? Uh, and within that, of course, um, a foundation around skills and regulation. And in, interestingly, Brexit does offer us an opportunity to begin to lead the world uh, in regulation uh, through life sciences, and in particular, uh, through cell therapies, uh, through gene therapies, and other forms of uh, regenerative medicine. We also have led the world through GEL, the Genomics England project, which is decoding the whole genome of 100,000 patients and bringing their genomic data together with their phenotypics, that are they old, young, smoke, etc. And it was announced two weeks ago that they're halfway there, so 50,000 uh, in 13 centres around the UK uh, have now been fully decoded with a few to go. You might ask yourself, well, what is the purpose of all of this? Well, it's founded on, on uh, many pillars and, and some of them are there. So how do we uh, continue to gain an industrial advantage in a post-Brexit environment and which aspects of life sciences can we succeed in when in competition with the rest of the world and in collaboration with the rest of the world and genomics medicine Advanced therapeutics is certainly one of those areas within health sciences and, of course, within sciences in general uh, that we can succeed. And, in fact, there was over a billion pounds of direct investment into genomics research just uh, in 2016, 
the vast majority of that uh, happened to be in the southeast, but, but that's just um, how it is, and currently over 10,000 employees. Are we, are we on our own? Well, no, there are uh, other organizations, other countries who are also taking on this. So it's very important that we uh, collectively commit uh, to making uh, the best advantage uh, that we possibly can uh, and to understand what we can do with uh, our genomic data collectively, all of our genomic data, not just for us, but also for uh, society as a whole. We also are very fortunate in this country that we have a population in which many ethnicities are represented. And there is a very interesting, the East London Genes and Health Program is understanding the genomes uh, of both Pakistani and Bangladeshi communities to understand why their diabetic and heart disease um, prevalences uh, are so high compared, genetically compared to other communities within the UK. And, and those uh, benefits that we have as a, a society can also be brought to bear. So ultimately, and I think perhaps part of the debate we will have this evening is why will I allow my genetic data to be put into a database which can then be anonymized and then in turn used collectively, and I think it's an interesting debate. I would argue that the benefit of many um, is gained through that commitment of you and I into releasing these anonymized data uh, into a health and industrial community who will work on them. And I'll stop there. So, we all now know what the sector deal and the industrial strategy is, maybe. So, the next speaker is Athena Matakidu, um, Head of Clinical Genomics at AstraZeneca's Centre for Genomics Research and also a clinician, a cancer doctor. Great. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this event. And uh, I'm going to carry on from where Dr. Foster left to talk a little bit about what we in AstraZeneca feel that we can do with this genomic data and why we think it's worthwhile uh, sort of uh, engaging in these initiatives, not just from an industrial perspective, but from a patient population perspective. So one of the major shifts in medicine over the last few years has been the realization that actually the formula of one fits all that we've been using doesn't, no longer applies. We know that medicines don't work for everybody, uh, and we need to be much better at deciding what to give to the right patient. So this idea of the precision medicine, where we choose the medication for the disease, but for the disease of the patient, to suit the patient. This has really been led by oncology, by cancer care, where we have seen a number of medicines where they actually target genes within the tumors that drive the cancers. And by doing that, you can get much better responses in the population of patients that have these diseases, so targeted uh, medicine. It, a lot of medications in oncology are coming through, but we are far behind in common diseases. We're far behind in cardiovascular, respiratory diseases, where we don't really understand how to target medicines to patients. And here is where genomics comes in. There's been a lot of advances in, in science and technology. There's a lot of new platforms. Genomics is leading the way. So how can we choose genomics to find that golden egg? So... From an AstraZeneca perspective, but I think also from a healthcare perspective, what can genomics deliver? If you can understand the gene that leads, that causes the disease, you get insights into each biology. You can understand why it forms, and then you can figure out a way to try and stop it or reverse it. And uh, by doing this, you will be able to develop new targets, new medicines. 
Genetics is also essential when it comes to drug development in supporting clinical trials, in picking the right patients to put in your trial so the medication can prove its real effect and the medication can get to patients faster. Also in the long term, we want to use genetics so that we can match patients to the right treatment and that doesn't just mean efficacy, so whether that treatment is going to work for the disease, but also safety. Is the treatment going to be safe for these patients? And genomics can help us to try and address this. So with this in mind, AstraZeneca in 2016 launched a genomics initiative, which was a large effort to try and harness the power of genomics and apply the knowledge that we get into drug development. The aim is to analyze 2 million genomes, uh, and out of those two million, about half a million will come from patients that donate genomic samples when they participate in AZ clinical trials. Okay. Now, why does AstraZeneca want to make this big commitment? It's a lot of money. It's a large effort. It's a 10-year initiative. Um, we know that genetics can help. We know it because there have been a lot of insights that have been provided from families that carry specific mutations or um, variants that increase risk of disease. And we have learned from this about disease. New technologies over the last few years have allowed us to look at common variants, variants that a lot of us will carry within this group. The problem we have with this variation is that the effects on disease are very small. So it just modulates, just mediates a little bit your disease. It doesn't cause it. They're not causal. And it's the causal variants, the drivers, that you need to find to understand disease. And we believe these variants are going to be rare. So in order to get to them, we need to have sequencing data where you look at the genetic, gen the genes, or uh, all of the genes in, in the genomes of the patients. And you need to look at large numbers because you're looking for very few individuals that might be carrying these genes. So that's where the two million came from. It's not good having just the genetics. You need to correlate what you see with what the patient is going to get. So you need the clinical variables. You need to know the disease the patient develops, what subtype it is. Is it aggressive? Is it not? Does it respond to a medicine? Does it not? It's these correlations that provide the value. Otherwise, genomics on its own doesn't, cannot translate into clinical care. So the integration of genomic and clinical data is crucial, and that's where uh, the samples from our clinical trials become very valuable to us. We also realized quite early on that this is not something that one organization or one company can deliver on their own. This needs to be done through partnership, through collaboration. And... Uh, our initiative is very much driven by collaboration. So we've taken a very open, outwards-facing approach. We've established multiple partnerships throughout the world, and the partnerships have uh, many um, reasons for, for uh, being established. We want partnerships with the providers that will provide us the sequencing. We want partnerships with experts in the analysis, in the storage, in interpretation of the results, and we have collaborations with universities, the University of Columbia and the Sanger Institute in Cambridge. We want partnerships with consortia and organizations that have access to these clinical samples with clinical, to these genomic samples with clinical data. AstraZeneca has made a commitment to build their research and development center in Cambridge because we recognize that the sector is very strong in the UK. 
We recognize that apart from the academic expertise, the NHS offers a number of opportunities for drug development. So our partnerships within the UK are essential. We've got partnerships with Stratified Medicine Scotland, with Genomics England, the University of Cambridge, and we've recently announced a partnering with the government and Regeneron to help sequence the UK Biobank and provide extra sample to that half a million collection that is already available. So with this, I will leave you, and I'll be happy to take questions later. Thank you very much. The next speaker is um, Edward Hawkins, who's the founding director of Ethics and Genetics, an independent non-profit organisation which champions democratic participation and transparency in the governance of biotechnology and the life sciences. So, Although I'm going to focus on the 100,000 Genome Project, the concerns I'm going to raise and the observations I'm going to make apply with uh, equal measure to related bioscience policy. Uh, that includes the integration of personalized medicine in mainstream healthcare, regulatory approval for mitochondrial DNA transfer, and approval of genetic modification for research purposes in human embryos. No one can deny that bioscience policy in the UK is increasingly motivated by economic considerations. Since this is happening so early on in the development of genetic technologies, we have to ask ourselves where this is going. The very pioneers of genetic engineering recently expressed concern that just accepting um, the use of genetic engineering to fix faulty genes could pave the way for designer babies and human enhancement. They urged greater public understanding of this new wave of uh, technologies and called for a moratorium on editing the human germline. That intervention has largely fallen on deaf ears, which I believe brings us to the crux of the matter. Whenever we hear about the latest developments in gene editing, for in CRISPR, for instance, there appears to be agreement among bioethicists, members of industry, and scientists that we shouldn't proceed with these new technologies without broad public agreement. But while steps are being taken to edit the human germline, commercial interests are being prioritized at the expense of giving the public a place at the policy-making table. The significance, of germ the significance of editing the germline within the context of human evolution cannot be overstated. There is no doubt that we are witnessing human history in the making. As such, a huge responsibility lies on each of our shoulders to get this right. With the significant increase in commercial actors in this area, the, the window of opportunity is closing. The current model could result, this current model, the model that's being put in place, could result in the institutional lock-in of commercialization in this area, which could in turn shape future applications of these technologies. If we are serious about a democratic bioscience, which would give the public a level of control that it otherwise would not have, then we should start with the 100,000 Genome Project. We asked the Department of Health if they intended to expand the 100,000 Genome Project. They told us that, quote, a decision would be made by the Secretary of State following discussions with a range of interested parties, unquote. 
I optimistically assumed that this would include the public. There are millions of us, so surely our voice matters. However, a statement by the Department of Health in response to a Freedom of Information request I made in February reveals this decision has already been made. The department said in response that the 100,000 Genome Project will be integrated into a single national genomic database and that, quote, it is inevitable that the project will be expanded. My optimism, therefore, was misplaced. A couple of months later, a supposedly independent report from the UK's chief medical officer, Sally Davies, called for an expansion of the project, despite the fact that the Department of Health had previously told me that it was inevitable. As for the single genomic database, the Department of Health told me that its purpose will be to support, quote, care and support and the acceleration of industrial usage, unquote. The recent trade deal and life science strategy mark a further intensification of private sector activity in this area. Since commercialization is intensifying, it's important to foster foresight about how the information held on our genomes could be used in the future. Our genome is a wealth of information, and let us not forget, data is the oil of the digital revolution. Briefly, what could genomic information add to Google's already far-reaching database of individual information? A hint lies in its self-confessed aspirations to organize our lives for us. The algorithms, quote, will get better, and we will get better at personalization, unquote, according to Eric Schmidt, the executive chairman of Google's parent company, Alphabet. This will, quote, enable Google users to ask the question, what shall I do tomorrow, or what job shall I take, unquote. With personalization as its ultimate goal, Google intends to use machine learning algorithms which track our digital footprint and target users with personalized advertising based on their preferences. It also wants to analyze health data and genomic data to make predictions, such as when a person might develop bipolar disorder or tell us what we should do with our lives. We cannot assume that people will make life choices based on their genetic profile without undue pressure commercial or or governmental. As far as how genomic data might be used and what decisions will be taken about us, the mass surveillance by government agencies of their own citizens is a chilling reminder of the way information technology can be used. There's something unpalatable about everything being connected and everything being known. Indeed, too much personalization is likely to be intrusive. Much of what is driving contemporary bioscience policy comes down to giving the UK economy a shot in the arm. Whilst commercialization can be a force for good, it's a double-edged sword. Therefore, we should be extremely cautious about allowing the profit motive to become the main driving force. One example of the morally unpalatable side of commercialization is the systematic distortion of evidence on which medicine is based by the pharmaceutical industry. This led Ben Goldacre to observe that the whole edifice of medicine is broken. We don't have to dig too deeply for evidence that the 100,000 Genome Project is failing to live up to the required standards of transparency. We showed that the Department of Health misinformed the public about the level of access granted to commercial actors 
in the 100,000 Genome Project. In particular, it said that data would be, quote, pseudonymized, unquote, rather than anonymized, meaning there would still be information available, such as age and geographic location. So from the get-go, participants, were, participants and the public were misled. The UK is not the only country that's showing great ambition in this area. China is too. If the public are going to be given a voice, then it's, in, then it's countries like ours that must lead the way. The path we are on will lead to a heavily commercialized model of genetic technologies. Is this a, refre a reflection of British of um, British society, of British values, and what the public would ultimately choose. Britain has a rich history of industry and science, but it is also known throughout the world as a beacon of democracy. There's no reason why the UK cannot be at the cutting edge of harnessing the potential of this, new, of this unique asset and at the same time lead by example by implementing a genuinely democratic bioscience. In order to do this, however... Both the government and the public have to rise to the occasion. This surely should not be beyond 21st century democracies. At present, public engagement exercises and consultations merely add a veneer of legitimacy to decisions that had already been made. Why don't we match the spectacular infrastructure of the 100,000 Genome Project and related bioscience initiatives with an effort to raise awareness on a national scale? I think the significance of the biosciences appeals far more to the public imagination than what policymakers think. I also think the public are not opposed to the biosciences in principle, but public trust, as we saw with care data, is something policymakers cannot do without. Thank you. So our final speaker this evening is Dr. Jane Spink, who's the Chief Exec at Genetic Alliance UK, a charity that brings together more than 200 third sector organisations providing patient support, information and funding for research. Well, we're, we're talking about putting our genome to work in a post-Brexit era for the NHS, for patients and for industry. And I think the question of whether the UK is going to remain attractive as a place to conduct clinical trials and to launch new medicines after Brexit is one of the most important ones we can address, particularly in the context of rare diseases, where in a single country, should we experience regulatory diversion, our ability to uh, participate in multinational trials, which is so crucial in terms of developing new medicines for rare diseases, will be severely impeded. And therefore, I'll start by putting my cards on the table and say that putting our genome to work may be a saving grace. A quick introduction to Genetic Alliance UK for some context. We do have 200 members who are third sector organisations who variously support, provide information to families and individuals affected by genetic conditions and also fund and support research. We also are home to the Rare Disease UK campaign, which has over 2,000 supporters and 300 patient organisations involved in its work. And Rare Disease UK was created to promote an environment where policies developed for the benefit of um, those with rare diseases in the UK could thrive. And finally, we are home to SWAN UK, which provides support and information to families who have a child or young person affected by a condition of unknown origin, but which is likely to be genetic. 
And I just wanted to give you that for context, because I'm going to go on and um, talk about our work in relation to genomics and the views of our community on um, genomics and the sharing of data. And unlike... Um, Sarah's friends at her dinner party. This is a community which has a lot of contact with science and politics. It's a community where people may have themselves undergone um, genetic testing or from the Swan community and the wider community may have participated in 100,000 genomes. So we've undertaken a range of initiatives. We don't have time to go through the results in any detail, but all of these reports are available on the Genetic Alliance UK website. And I've pulled together some of the findings from across these projects as a backdrop for what I wanted to say this evening. These are some of um, the key questions that the Genetic Alliance UK has explored. Perhaps the most pertinent to this evening's um, considerations and conversations are those that are related to the sharing and use of genomic data. And bundled up um, with these questions is the matter about which bodies we trust and why. So what patients um, broadly expect and want falls into two broad um, categories. Firstly, it relates to their own health and well-being. And in this, they want um, options to receive as much information about their health as possible from genome sequencing. But that's um, information that's delivered in a structured way and that comes complete with counselling for context about what wider findings in genomic testing might mean for them and their families. And then the second um, thing that um, patients want, rare disease patients want from uh, genomics and their participation in it is research that will result in better diagnosis, care and treatment for themselves and for others. A common experience for rare disease patients results in terms of difficulties in obtaining a diagnosis or the so-called diagnostic odyssey and also issues related to accessing coordinated care and effective care. And I think patients and patient advocates see genomics and other broader research as the key to unlocking some of those really necessary aspects of healthcare. So we also um, wanted to know what patients' views were on um, data sharing. And I think it's important to stress that there is general agreement with current systems to oversee data sharing through the 100,000 Genomes Project, which is a phenomenally powerful vehicle bringing together clinical and genomic data to foster research in the NHS. The most common concerns related to capacity in the NHS, so that is, um, once we have all this data, how are we going to put it to good use? And also relating to the um, misuse of data. And I think there's a very clear quote from one of our um, survey respondents at the bottom of this slide. which, And the respondent says, I support the principle of open sharing of information for scientific purposes to increase knowledge and work towards developing treatments. And it's really clear that the vast majority would be happy for their information to be used broadly in terms of medical research. We also wanted to know um, whether patients trust companies with genomic data. Um, and I think it's important to note that most do trust 
um, pharmaceutical companies. And if we look back to my mother's generation, I think people trusted companies a lot more. And the level to which um, we trust companies today is very much tied up with, I think, media coverage. I think it's tied up with questions of around access to expensive treatments. Um, so... Um, this is, this is sourced from our 2014 report, and it's not static, so we do see this change between reports, but not to a great extent. And I think the big problem is, for those that feel less trustful, is when they feel that there's a profit to be made, that patients are not going to be put first. And it seems that there's a hierarchy of trust when it comes to the use of personal genetic information. So this is another snapshot from a 2016 um, report. And here we've only given the option of private companies rather than um, specifying which type of company. So I think the most reliable and relevant finding here is probably that there's a high level of trust from patients in the NHS in terms of the use of personal genetic information for research. And I think that what this blunt question doesn't do is it doesn't ask the question about collaboration and it doesn't explain the importance of collaboration. We all know that medicines are developed by companies. We all know that the NHS isn't bringing medicines to market. And we all also know that the best partnerships are where academics, clinicians, the NHS and companies come together to deliver benefit for patients. Sarah um, mentioned from her dinner party research that um, insurance and fear of discrimination is one which is often expressed in relation to the sharing of genetic data. And our reports um, bear this out also, Sarah, um, that although there's a moratorium on the use of predictive genetic tests by insurers um, beyond a certain level, um, that we've seen no evidence that this moratorium is being breached and yet this still remains a very keen concern for individuals and we're already beginning to see um, some question how wise it is to have genomic testing or predictive genetic testing when the future of that moratorium is not clearly certain. So in terms of final thoughts, um, it's interesting that um, we already know a great deal about the hopes, the expectations, and the preferences of patients in the context of genomics in research, and research in the NHS, um, and that there are some um, additional considerations around trust that we need to address. And I think it's also interesting to note that um, we've already mentioned tests that can be bought online um, as a consumer on a click-and-pay basis, where people are willing to divulge without too much worry lots of personal information, lots of information about their health and well-being, as well as give up samples which do contain their genome for genetic testing that can and are shared and sold for profit. Speakers for sharing their expertise. So Elliot, Athena, Edward and Jane, thank you ever so much. I'm round of
and I just want to say there's been a huge amount of discussion around um, the 100,000 Genomes Project, and Progress Educational Trust has done quite a bit of work with them and is continuing to do work with them on the genomics conversation and tackling these issues. And I think, from my personal perspective, I think it is, you know, Genomics England are going out with these questions um, around consent in order to um, get soundings and to see what people think about the initiatives. And it is very much, and it was at the start, you know, the first time we've done this. And so, as I recall, the dialogue around that time was about this is a project, a learning project, and it will develop as it goes. 